When I was young, I learned that love was all about romantic comedies, Valentine's Day, chocolate, and flowers. A lot of capitalist heterosexual BS. Now I know that real love is ferocious, it's terrifying, and it's a catalyst for change. I'm Ethan Lipsitz, and I created Love Extremist Radio as a platform to engage with people who are on the front lines of wrestling with and redefining love on their terms. They're activists, artists, and creators, all making change in their communities and the world. Thanks for being here. Together, let's define what it means to be a love extremist. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Adina Lichtman is from West Orange, New Jersey, and is now living in the East Village of New York City. She founded Knock Knock Give a Sock during her time at NYU in 2015. Today, Knock Knock Give a Sock is a nonprofit that focuses on humanizing homelessness one sock at a time by collecting socks for those experiencing homelessness while also building relationships between neighbors. Adina runs Knock Knock Give a Sock full time, and when she is not busy collecting socks, she fills her time hosting big Shabbat dinners, painting, and talking to strangers. I love this bio. I love what you're up to, talking to strangers. One of my favorite things to do. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> we were strangers just a few weeks ago until we got connected via WhatsApp. I know. It's beautiful. Well, so the crazy thing, I hope all of you here are taking advantage of Clubhouse to connect and meet new people. Um, it's so cool. My, I reconnected with an old college friend, Jack Cohen, who is now a rabbi, and, and we do conversations about religion and all sorts of things um, on the Love Extremist Club, and he introduced me to Adina and many other amazing people. So really grateful to be having this conversation with you and exploring your work as it relates to love and just such an important topic uh, to, be, to be talking about always, but especially now during the pandemic. I'd love to kick things off with my standard intro question, which is maybe goes right for the jugular. It's a tough one. But how do you define love, Adina? So it's actually a great question. And I think there are so many different levels of love, whether it comes to friendship, when it comes to, you know, new people, when it comes to new experiences. Um, I think the first time I came to experiencing or defining love um, was I think when I fell in love for the first time. And, you know, in full transparency, you know, it wasn't a reciprocated relationship, but I think we all have those moments, whether it's college, high school, beyond where, you know, we've experienced our first heartbreak. But what led me to, to defining what love meant in that moment was when I was feeling the emotions of that other person. When that other person was going through a difficult time, I couldn't help but feel like I was going through a difficult time. When I was, feel, you know, when that other person was feeling hurt, I felt hurt. When that other person was feeling joy, I felt joy. Um, and while that relationship wasn't, you know, the ultimate big love, and now I'm very happily married, um, to me, it helped me moving forward recognize what love was and very much realizing that feeling someone else's emotions and being so on the same page or so in tune not even on the same page, I don't think you need to be on the same page, but being so in tune with someone else's emotion to me and being able to like feel their emotions. Like you, it's almost hard for you to get back into your own emotions because you're so much feeling that other person's emotions. That's what to me, defi I define as love. Wow. 
Yes. I mean, it sounds a lot like kind of the, the blend of empathy and compassion. Also, you mentioned it's sometimes hard to get back into your own. How do you regulate? How do you stay in kind of self-love and within yourself when you're in this state of loving? How do you balance that when you're connecting to another individual and feeling that love between you and them? So I think uh, there are two ways, right? Like in that first instance, right, that was heartbreak, right? And it, it was sad and there, there wasn't really the ability to, it not, eventually there was the ability, but it took time to get back to that place of being able to love myself and recognize my own self-worth and my own self-love, right? Um, because we're feeling that pain and that heartbreak. I think that's a different love than when you're in a relationship and you're feeling that other person's emotion. Uh, but there's, there's a different relationship there, right? You are in the relationship, so you work through it together. You help uplift and inspire and be their strength. So I think they're kind of two different categories versus being in love and it's, you know, not reciprocated, right? Or being in a relationship and being in a relationship with that person and I think feeling their pain, it becomes a much easier balance because you're working through it with them. Wow, that's a beautiful distinction. I'm curious if you use the word love in your professional work and your, the relationships you build with people who are experiencing houselessness and homelessness. So it's actually really interesting. Um, and obviously we'll delve in further to what my work is, but I find myself using I love you so much more often with my neighbors on the street so much more quickly than I've used it with new friends or new relationships. Um, and I think there's two reasons for that. One, it's because when you kind of connect with someone who's living such a different life and you're connecting on the stories, you kind of cut through the bullshit very quickly, right? You just kind of connect at a heart level because there's so few materialistic commonalities, right? What you have in common with that person is something that's so deep, right? It's so beneath the material, right? When you're connecting over souls and life stories and journeys, uh, you get to love much quicker. The other thing is when you recognize so many people are homeless, they just, they don't have as many connections with other people. So when they say they love you, it is one of the few people in their lives that they're saying, I love you too. Homelessness has so many different reasons, but one of the reasons that you won't find on any website is, and I'm so sorry that it's a little noisy here. I'm gonna go try to find a quieter spot. Um, but I would say, one of the leading causes of homelessness is actually loneliness. We have so many supports and networks and so many barriers or nets to fall through before we enter homelessness. And so many of our neighbors on the street actually don't have those networks. They have so many fewer people to say the words I love you to. That's so interesting and, and makes sense, right? I mean, you, it's funny how when we find, we bridge these differences, sometimes we can get to such a deeper emotional level so much quicker. It's like fast track to deep connection is bringing two people together who are from opposite sides of a lived experience and finding the commonalities and the humanity. It's like so apparent and easy to see that, you know, you can't help but loving it and loving them. Uh, that's really powerful and, and very much love extremist. I, I wonder if there's a story you'd be willing to share that kind of illustrates what you're talking about. Is there is there an example that you can think of uh, where those kind of differences broke down quickly and you, you felt that love and were able to express it? To answer that question, I would say uh, there's 
one running narrative, I would say, as opposed to one story. Um, and I'll, go, I'll actually go into one narrative and one story. Um, a lot of times, the ones who are the quickest, you know, a lot of our neighbors are the quickest to say, I love you to me, are often like our neighbors who have actually lived on the streets, who have come from gang violence, who have come from, you know, situations where they were previously incarcerated. And they, and like, they are the ones who are the first ones to be so ready and so open to love. And so many of these guys, I would say, you know, and, and this goes back to kind of like the stereotyping that so often happens when it comes to our neighbors experiencing homelessness. But like, I'm talking about like the big, broad, tall guys, you know, who have spent 20 years in prison. Like, these are the guys who are the first ones to really open their heart and say, Adina, you're the only person who I feel like I've connected to in the last six months, and I love you. And they'll call me on Christmas, and they'll call me on New Year's, and they'll call, call me year-round. And I would say that is something that we, we don't often expect. Um, just this real tender gentleness that a lot of people from the outside looking at these neighbors would not expect that. Uh, the second thing that I'd like to say is I have two neighbors uh, who have experienced homelessness in the last 10, 15 years and have spent nights sleeping on subways, sleeping on park benches, um, and have really, you know, start, one of them is still in a transitional shelter, but one has completely pulled herself, you know, out of it. And they come every year to my family for Thanksgiving dinner. And every year at Thanksgiving dinner, now my family, it's a joke. Everyone's like yelling over each other. It's loud, it's noisy, it's like not super mushy. No one's like super into talking about their emotions. But every year they come in and they hug my parents and they cry and they say, you have no idea what it means and what it feels like to be accepted and be a part of a family. And something that's really unique is in both of those situations, both of those people have separately said to me, I never thought that a white family would let me into their home like this. And race really plays a role. Like one of my friends, he said to me, he's like, Adina, it's crazy that I'm in your family's home and no one's putting away the fancy china, no one's putting away the fancy you know, dishes. Uh, the expensive things you have around your house. And that is something that I think is really fascinating um, and has been really special for both my family and I every single year on Thanksgiving. Wow. That's beautiful story to tell and um, powerful to hear. Thank you for, for that and illustrating that. Let's, let's jump into the history of what you do. How did Knock Knock Give a Sock come to be? What's the origin story? years ago I was a sophomore in college and I was giving out sandwiches to my neighbors on the street and one of the guys Joe Teplow who's actually in this room was one of those guys there with me handing out yes, sandwiches Joe. to my neighbors on the street and one guy said ma'am it's so nice you're giving out sandwiches but one thing we could use our socks I went to my dorm room I opened my drawer and saw that my pink socks polka dotted socks weren't gonna fit my new friend Diego so I decided to go and knock on every door on my floor in about 15 minutes, I got over 40 pairs of socks. Fast forward to my senior year of college, we'd spread to over 20 college campuses and collected over 50,000 pairs of socks. And I joke at that point that I kind of became the sock celebrity on campus. Um, I was considered a social entrepreneur and I didn't even know how to spell the word entrepreneur. And I would always ask the audience two questions and I invite everyone in here who's listening to ask themselves these two questions. I would say, who here's ever given money, food, or clothing to someone in need or donated in a donation bin? And everyone would raise their hand. And then I would ask the audience, who here can tell me the name of one person experiencing homelessness? 
and almost no one could raise their hand. And I realized that there was this gap between those who were giving and actually knowing those people who they were giving to. And I found that to be fascinating. And the same people who were handing me socks were also asking me questions like, you know, what you're doing is great, but aren't most people who are homeless choosing to be homeless? Or aren't most of them alcoholics or drug addicts? Or don't they have mental illness? And we know that we don't even use the word mental illness anymore. We talk about mental health, mental wellness, mental, you know, mental well-being. Uh, so homelessness all of a sudden had a name and a face, you know, sorry, homelessness, like there was such a stigma around it, right? And from these people who were actually giving of themselves. So I decided to bring 50 of my college classmates and 50 people living in shelters to actually have dinner side by side. And college students said, Adina, we can't tell who's homeless and who's not. Because they were meeting moms who had three kids who, who couldn't afford childcare. Dads who'd gotten out of prison, couldn't get jobs afterwards. People working minimum wage jobs, but that doesn't get you out of the shelter system. And all of a sudden, homelessness had a name and a face and a story to it. And it was at that moment that I wanted to make that my career, except I didn't want to do it just with college campuses. I wanted to do it with the corporates. I wanted the JP Morgans. I wanted the Goldman Sachs. I wanted the sales forces of the world to actually sit down side by side with their neighbors living in local shelters and learning their stories and connecting. Um, but who was gonna listen to a college graduate? Like, oh yeah, JP Morgan, let's do a dinner with your employees and people living in local shelters. Oh, and let's do it in your offices, right? Like, what the heck? So what we actually did, we decided our, our mission would be humanizing homelessness one sock at a time by turning transactions into interactions. So after we got these companies to do a sock drive, we would then ask them to do a meet your neighbors dinner where we brought their employees and people living in local shelters to have dinner side by side. So now four years later in our pre-COVID world, uh, what we essentially do is we engage companies to do sock collections. We hire people living in shelters to collect, you know, pick up and drop off those socks. And we also do these meet your neighbor dinners, bringing communities together. It's so amazing. And uh, I kudos to you for figuring out how to bridge that gap from asking this question, how do we do these dinners to, you know, finding that way to start with the drive and then move to the dinner and, and, and bring people together. Do you have a, a, a fun kind of story or, or outcome from some of these dinners? Have there been ongoing relationships built or um, things that have, that have shifted in terms of what's, what's come afterwards? There have been so many, but before I even talk about some of the connections and relationships that were born out of it, I would like to say that so often people say to me, come on, Adina, isn't that uncomfortable, like having rich people sit with people in shelters? Like, why would the people in the shelters even want to do it? Um, and that's a question that I got a lot. But once I started doing these events, what I actually learned is our neighbors living in shelters have loved the events and are the reason why we keep doing them. We've had, you know, at our, one of our first Meet Your Neighbors dinner we ever had, we had a woman who got up and she was, you know, she had a walker, she had, you know, she had disabilities and she said, in society, I have always felt invisible. And when I don't feel invisible, I feel like I'm annoying to society. But here is a place where I actually feel a part of society, a part of community. 
I had another guy who got up in our first year. It was kind of the year of sink or swim. Like, can we do this? Can we not? And he said to me, you know, Dean, I've been living in Brooklyn for 40 years. I spent over 20 years in prison. And I never thought my Brooklyn would look like this. Black people and white people staying together. He said, tonight is my first night sitting at the table with a white person before. It is my first night sitting at a table with a white person. And you need to keep doing this. This is so powerful. And he said it to me with tears in my eyes. So anytime we're struggling, it's really him who I think about um, as the hope and the reason to push me and, you know, push me forward in continuing this work. It's, it's so powerful and um, reminds me actually of a conversation I was having with uh, our friend Joe about this idea of depth and just building extremely deep relationships with people and getting that immediate feedback. So often, especially in Clubhouse and these kind of cultures of innovation and entrepreneurship and, and impact, there's this idea that we need to hit millions of people and you know have so much impact and you've done that with socks and with with getting you know people on campuses to to give and people in corporations but there's also this depth component and it sounds like that is equally if not more impactful and measurable for your success and your sense of purpose how do you balance those two things my parents always tell me, they're like, you finally use manipulation for good, right? The socks are important. The socks are great. Uh, but the socks are really kind of like the bait, right? It's, it's getting our sock in the door with those companies. Um, and it really isn't about the transaction. It really is about the interaction. And it's not easy to approach these big companies and say, yeah, let's sit down and have a connection or a conversation with our neighbors. And even still today, right? How do you measure the impact of dignity? How do you measure the impact of education and breaking stigmas around homelessness? And it's something I struggle with even today, like applying for all these grants, it is so hard to get funding because we don't have a way to measure this impact. But it's easy to put a number on, hey, we've collected you know, over three million pairs of socks in X amount of years, right? That's easy and that's easy to quantify and people are looking to constantly, we live in a time where people are constantly trying to look to quantify and put numbers on things. Um, and that's one of the things that I really struggle with and I say, okay, you know what, the socks will bring us the numbers that we need, but these dinners will bring us the impact we need. And that's how I, I kind of grapple with the two. And all the funders in the audience and listening in on this recording, uh, make sure you hit up Adina because she's doing incredible work. <laughs> so yeah, let's support her. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious to hear what you think some of the biggest disconnects are around we as housing secure people engaging with people experiencing houselessness and homelessness. Wh where do you think there's just kind of lack of understanding or, or assumptions being made that aren't fair or aren't correct? You mentioned a few, but what are some of the big issues that keep recurring? around homelessness and you know I think we kind of sometimes think like Gen Z is like this new generation that is so innovative and thinking but I've spoken to and they are but I have just had so many conversations with college students and college groups I even had one last night where they said to me they're like how do you balance you know the idea of having people who are homeless but you know they're faking it when they ask for money like there's so many people that we that do that and I was like really can you name me any it's like, no, 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 but like, you know, like a lot of people fake being homeless in order to get money. And I basically had to explain, like, 
anyone who's asking for money, even if they have a place to sleep that night, whether it's a friend's couch, whether it's a car, whether it's a subway, right? Whether it's, you know, their parents' apartment. If they're on the street asking for money, they need it. But I think there's, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring, the Jew in me is gonna bring out some Torah. Um, I hope that's okay, but. Go for it. Uh, there's two places in the entire Torah, in the entire Bible, that say, do not harden your heart. They reference hardening your heart. And the first time we see it is when, when Pharaoh, the Jews were in slavery in Egypt, and God says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? AKA he became stubborn. And that's why he wasn't giving the Jewish people away. There's one other place in the entire Torah in which it says it. And it's talking to the Jewish people and it says, do not harden your heart when it comes to charity. And you, I, you read that initially and you're like, what? And this is like actual text, right? It's not even an opinion, it's text. And you think like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, of course, who hardens their heart when it comes to giving charity? That's a crazy concept. But the truth is, anytime we go on a subway, I can say I've, it's happened to me, right? You pass by your neighbor on the street and you think maybe they're just gonna use it for alcohol. Or you see your neighbor on the subway sharing their story and you're like, well, they have nice shoes, so how true is that story? Or maybe they use it on that new iPhone. So do, are they really using the money you know, properly? So often, these are just a few examples of the ways that we harden our heart when it comes to homelessness every single day. Sometimes it's too painful to look at and we'll cross the street because it's too hard for us and maybe we don't want to say we don't have change in our pocket or we don't want to give the change in our pocket. Um, and I would say, our hearts are constantly being hardened because of the stigmas and the stereotypes around homelessness. Uh, but the more neighbors you speak to on the street, the more you get a taste of their story, the more you connect with our neighbors in shelters, the more, you know, the less that, that guard comes up, right? That hardening doesn't come up as often, right? And that slowly dissipates. And that's why I encourage connection because when you just see something, we have so many stigmas. And I would like to add one uh, crazy statistic that most people don't know. But when it comes to homelessness in New York City, right? So out of the 100% of the homeless population in New York City, actually only 5% of homelessness is street homelessness, people living on the street in New York City, which means 95% of them are sleeping in shelters or cars. And it is still not the image we have when we think of homelessness. And out of the 60,000 people who are homeless in New York City, 25,000 are children, but we don't know. That's over one third of homelessness in New York City are people under the age of 18, but that's not what we imagine, right? Wow. Yeah, that's definitely not what we imagine. I, I wonder, it sounds like there's also maybe fear that comes up for people. I mean, there's certainly judgment but and hardening, but there's also perhaps this fear of the unknown or this fear of harm or... Just, yeah, a lot of people are uncomfortable getting out of even their comfort zone of talking to their friends, right? And or their immediate family. I mean, a lot of what I talk about as a love extremist is learning how to love beyond our inner circle. How did you get to this place of kind of being so fearless and being able to engage with your neighbors without questioning it or thinking twice? Or, you know, have you ever been in kind of sticky situations where it's, it's made you a little more hesitant or reticent? Part of it is, since I was a kid, my parents were always petrified. I was always talking to strangers and engaging strangers and like just 
if I was sitting next to someone on an airplane, I would grab their email. My parents were like, you're nine years old. That's a 40-year-old man. Why are you talking to him, right? So these are the kinds of things that were always happening to me. So I would say part of it was my personality. Um, I always felt like I wanted to connect more with the world and with people around me. So coming from my small, you know, little neighborhood in West Orange, New Jersey, and then moving to New York City for college, all of a sudden I wanted to talk to everyone. So it almost didn't matter if you were the Starbucks barista or the neighbor on the street or my professor, right? Everyone got a hello, everyone got a, you know, what's going on. I really wanted to create, you know, my few block radius at NYU as my own neighborhood where I felt like I knew everybody. Uh, so I really did that. Um, and I also took a class my freshman year on homelessness, which definitely made an impact. And I learned some statistics around homelessness. So now I was learning about it in class. Um, and I really wanted to connect with those people who I was reading about in my textbook. And I would say that's where, you know, it started. And education is so important. But it really, really took off once I kind of became known as the sock fairy. Like, literally, I would be handing out socks all the time with my backpack on my way to class. And then I went away for a semester, and I came back, and I saw a guy on the street who was like, you know, he's kneeling over as if he was like about to vomit, and I ran over, I was like, sir, are you okay? And he looks up, and I hadn't seen him in six months. He looks up and goes, hey, you're that sock fairy, aren't you? Which led me to crack up, but the idea is, you know, it was not having a fear of talking to strangers, but I, I to your point, want to say, Humans are very comfortable in the transaction. I would say it's not even difficult for someone to put a coin in a cup in our, you know, to our neighbors on the street. But having a conversation, that becomes scary, right? We can talk to the person at our checkout, right? How's your day going? How's the weather? But beyond that, it actually gets very difficult and very scary for people. Um, so kind of setting the stage to build an interaction, that's the only way we're able to take away the fear. By, by going a step further than the transaction. It's very easy to have a conversation with your teacher about class. It's much harder to have a conversation about your emotions and how you're feeling about a class. Um, and I think taking what's a transaction, what we're so used to, you know, um, and building that into an interaction can play out in every aspect of our lives. There's so much learning to be had in this. I mean, experiential learning and just... Um challenging people to engage with strangers. And it's, it's something we talk about a lot just uh, in the transactional side, but I think that's so right. You, to be able to actually go a little bit deeper and below the surface and, and get to know someone uh, and get to know their story and, and make time and, and have patience with them is just such a gift. And, and that can really make or break someone's day. So it's a beautiful act of love and act of service that, that you are engaging people in. It's really inspiring. Uh, so, thank yeah, thank you. <laughs> I want to regroup. Um, I am talking to Adina Lichtman, the founder of Knock Knock Give a Sock, about humanizing homelessness. This is a recorded conversation, and we're going to chat for another few minutes, and then I'm going to invite folks to raise hands and ask questions or share stories that relate to this conversation. Uh, it is being recorded, as I said, so we ask that you don't self-promote, and you just come up and ask a question or share, share an experience or perspective. Um, but really excited to have Adina here and uh, learn more about her work and her perspective. I'd love to zoom out a little bit and think about this on a national scale. Are there high-level policies 
or processes that you think uh, are necessary in this time to address housing for all in our cities? So I will say two things on that. The first thing I will say is, you know, a lot of people say, Dina, why don't you go into policy work, policy making? And I actually think that a lot of times once you bring up um, policies and government, right, everyone, our hearts kind of get like all defensive. Well, I'm this, well, I'm that, this is my opinion. And I think it actually um, prevents a lot of really important conversations from happening. So we as an organization um, really avoid talking about policy because the idea is talking about uniting people and opening people's hearts and connecting. But that does lead to my second question. Like, why is that important? Why is it important to open people's hearts if you're not gonna talk about policy? And the example that I always like to give is Let's say you're living in a neighborhood, and uh, by the way, this happens to be one of the biggest barriers to access housing are all these zoning laws and all these, um, you know, town hall meetings that say, we don't want this shelter built here. We don't want this affordable housing built here because we fear X, Y, Z happening in our community or happening in our neighborhood if this takes place, right? So it's not just that there isn't enough money being put into affordable housing, but there's also this you know, these fears and these biases that are preventing housing. So if we're able to make sure that every single person who's ever donated a dollar to any sort of charity can actually meet someone and know someone personally who's experiencing homelessness, we will move dramatically to change issues around homelessness, right? Because let's say there's someone even, and we can go beyond even talking about housing, right? If we talk about free childcare, you live in a good affluent neighborhood, you don't really need to worry about free childcare. But then you meet Susie, who actually lives in a family shelter because she doesn't have access to free childcare, and that's why she can't get a job, and that's why she's a single mom who doesn't have a job, right? All of a sudden you know somebody personally who's affected by these issues, and now when you read about a congressman who's running, who's talking about free childcare, all of a sudden you have an antenna, right? All of a sudden you read an article about homelessness and you care more because you know somebody who's experiencing homelessness, and that's the way we work. That's the way we operate as humans. The reason why we have allies and we have people who speak up for different communities is because they know people who are affected by those issues. Now, when it comes to homelessness and we have, you know, this great divide, this great gap between those living in homes and those living in shelters, right? So who, who are the people who are gonna speak up for them? Who are gonna be the people who speak out on issues that they need help with when we become so disconnected from that? So, all our work is directly related to changing policy, uh, but we specifically don't work on the policy because we believe that if we connect people with resources with those who don't have homes, that will create a sensitivity level. That will create these antennas for change um, and giving people who do have resources the, the access and the ability to figure out how they can help just through listening. Um, and just to kind of take that a step further, like what is the solution to homelessness? Um, time and time again, and if you don't work in the homelessness community, you might not be as familiar with this, but if you work in the homelessness community, um, anyone will tell you that the leading factor to ending homelessness is actually by providing housing. When you're jumping from shelter to shelter every few months, um, it's very hard to find stability. When you give someone housing, they're actually able to find job stability, they're able to get health stability, and all this money that goes to hospitals and prisons and food programs, all this money 
you know, that the government spends on issues that come up around people who are experiencing homelessness, the government ends up spending way less money just by providing housing because then all of these issues that we're constantly running into, those, those aren't happening. Um, so the real solution to ending homelessness is housing first, but there are so many barriers that actually do play into stigmas and stereotypes into different neighborhoods, which is some of the reason why there are such barriers to ending homelessness. Yeah, here in Los Angeles, there's this huge, you know, history of what's called nimbyism, not in my backyard, and neighborhood groups kind of banding together to keep their, what they call slow growth or no growth, and, and, and keep things kind of open and, and minimize development, but it, it leads to a huge houselessness crisis and homelessness crisis in the city, and uh, often um, people living very close by um, to, to, you know, folks who say no shelter, but, you know, shelters pop up organically. So um, better to have, have homes and, and places for people to live. And I think it's your show spot on and, and building those relationships and bringing it to close to home, right? Having this, these personal relationships where we know someone experiencing homelessness um, can help us become advocates for them uh, when we get into policy and our neighborhood groups. Exactly. And that's what we really, really try to focus on. It's like, there are so many groups out there that are working on housing first solutions. There are so many groups out there that are working on policy making to, to break through these barriers. But I really believe that we are one of the few organizations actually working on building relationships between those who have and those who don't, right? And building that bridge to break the stigma around homelessness. That's really awesome and great to hear. Um, and yeah, the, there's some amazing groups here in, in LA that are doing similar work, but I, I think your your effort is, is so inspiring and, and really provides a model for uh, the humanization side of this work that's so necessary. How do we get involved? How do we support you? And, and um, yeah, what's the best way? So great question. Um, I do have to say, um, when it comes to individual volunteers, it's not something we offer. Obviously, anyone can send us socks in the mail, but I do say uh, we engage communities whether it's a religious community, a workplace, um, a school group, whatever it is, uh, we engage communities. And the way we engage communities are in two ways. One, we have individuals who start sock drives in their own communities. And the other one is we offer Meet Your Neighbor events. Now, many of you are probably thinking, okay, how do you have a Meet Your Neighbor dinner? It's COVID, there's a pandemic. So we actually are not offering those dinners right now, but we are offering virtual Meet Your Neighbor panels where we bring you know two or three people who are living in shelters to share their story and share their journey with groups and um, joe's not here anymore but we did it with salesforce we've done it with some law firms we've done it with some banks um, so it's a very exciting way and we've also done it with religious groups we've done it with young professional networks um, but yeah that's one thing that i would say we can bring uh, and it's something that if you want to get in touch please you can either follow knock knock give a sock on Instagram and send me a message or you could DM me on Instagram which is just my name which is up here and send me a message or you can email me at adina at kkgs.org but I'll put that in my uh, bio actually yeah we definitely we need to we Absolutely. need to get the people need to get to you Adina it's important yes. excellent <laughs> amazing well I I would love to welcome um, the the stage up uh, and welcome everyone to ask questions and raise your hand if you have something for Adina, you'd like to um, bring a, a comment or a question into the space, 
um, welcome that at this point and just, um, yeah, you know, want to hear from you as to what's coming up through this conversation and, and how you engage with maybe the, the houseless and homeless community around you. Um, and, uh, Welcome, Alex. Thank you for, for being here and listening. And uh, what do you have for, for Adina? Um, <clears throat> well, I'm chiming in from Canada, from British Columbia. And um, what we've been experiencing here is a dramatic increase in rent and people who are on the lower income levels working minimum wage jobs are losing their homes. And so... What I did was, um, because I've been a housing advocate for over 20 years in British Columbia, what I did was I set up a Facebook group where um, there are 1,600 people, our members now, and what we do is we deal with issues between tenants and their landlords in order to preserve their housing so that they don't end up on the streets. And then additionally in my community, there are right now, this very moment, there's a huge discussion because the city is going to close down one of our shelters here and they're going to do it in two weeks and the 45 people who have been staying there all winter will be on the street and there is no place for them to go. And I know 45 doesn't seem like a big number, but it seems like a big number in addition to the 160 people we're aware of that are living on the streets. And the community is just up in arms about um, the, the province doesn't want the city to close down that facility. And people in our community are just up in arms about what do you mean we have to keep doing this? We need to stop doing this. There need to be better solutions. And nobody's coming up with better solutions. So a few of us are banding together to see if we can't change that conversation in our community. And so I think we have to sort of do the whole act globally, think locally, and what are we doing in our communities, looking at supportive housing, how are we getting people off the streets, and there are examples of communities that have decided that putting, that housing people ends up being economically better off for the community than the services that are required for people who live on the streets. And at least that's what our numbers in Canada are telling us. Um, thanks very much for the um, platform, Ethan. Just an idea. And um, my name is Alex, and I yield the floor. Alex, first of all, that is so brilliant. I also wish that more communities would respond in the way that your communities are. And I think, um, and I don't know exactly, you know, where you're from, what it's been like, but um, it's definitely a lot more people get lost in the shuffle in an urban neighborhood um, versus less urban neighborhoods. And I th just really wish all communities would react because that's really what it takes. Your community acting behind this is what's going to make sure that these 45 neighbors don't end up on the streets. And it's going to make sure that whether it's, you know, finding other shelters for them to go to temporarily, getting them housing, um, your community is going to be behind that. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that more communities don't work like that. Uh, I was actually called by the city once and uh, basically on the Upper West Side, like right along Central Park, there was supposed to be a shelter that was being built for employed people. It was an employment shelter. 
and the city was up in arms, like the people who were living locally did not want the shelter to be built. They actually sued the city for even suggesting that this shelter be built. They called me, they're like, can we set up a meet your neighbor dinner at the church there in the neighborhood to bring, you know, this town hall and these people who are going to be moving to the shelter together. But at that point, it was too, it was too tense of a situation where we couldn't even do anything. Um, so I really think it's so beautiful that you have a community that's working with you and behind you because it's something that happens, you know, far too rarely. Well, one of the things that we do here, and I, I'm assuming, I mean, I can't assume, but I do assume that each community has their own Facebook page. So that's what we have here. We have, and that debate is happening on our local Facebook page. Now, I live in Penticton, and it's been a little tempest in the teapot because the province has basically said, if the city intends on closing down that facility, the province will exert its right to maintain that facility and keep it open regardless of what city council wants to say. Now, city council is also dominated by wealthy old white men. And so there's a conversation happening yep. in our community about who's running in the next election, where are we as a community, and we have a provincial government that is standing for housing people who are homeless. Now, each most of the communities in British Columbia have their own home Facebook page. And if you're a keyboard warrior and that conversation is coming up in your community, this is the time when you can put your justice self out in the fore and deal with the issues that are coming up. Get your stats, know your numbers, and when people start saying things like, they're all drug addicts, they're all alcoholics, they're all thieves, the numbers actually don't bear those statements out. And I've noticed that people shut up quite quickly when you start laying out the absolute facts of what's going on. And here in British Columbia, if you have an encampment, so you have a place that's tense, there now the cities are providing porta potties and you can't tear them down. It's against the law in British Columbia to destroy an encampment because the Supreme Court of BC says that people who are in an encampment, when you take it down, they have nowhere else to go. So there's lots of things that you can do legislatively. There's things that you can do from behind your keyboard. And really isn't the whole point of this is to get people housed and to change our attitude towards people who are homeless. Because I can promise you no one I have ever met who was living on the street woke up one day and said, gee, I think I'll be homeless today. Or gee, I think I'll become an addict today. So use your power on the keyboard and get out there and get the message out in your communities yeah, that this well, is happening. Well, so we focus a lot on the latter, right? On the, on the changing attitudes, because there are so many people like yourselves who are working on the legislative side that we want those people who are in the town halls that aren't educated on the issues to start learning about it. Um, and that's where kind of we camp out. Um, and that's where we kind of uh, spread our message around people who wouldn't, who wouldn't really know otherwise. Uh, but Alex, I really, really appreciate all your work. And I wish, you know, the United States <laughs> and so many of our cities here uh, would band together as well as the communities like the one you're living in. I will say it makes no difference where you live. You have a vote. Make sure that you're looking at your city council and your county and your state legislators 
and they're adhering to a progressive agenda. Make it an issue. And you have the power of the vote. And I mean, that's the least someone can do is be aware of the issues, find out who your candidates are that are going to support you and vote them into office. Because then you at least have a chance of getting in the door to have real conversations about what are we doing as a community and who are the people we're serving and who are we in this process. And as and a person who considers himself reasonably enlightened, this is a seva. This is community service. This is what we do because we care about our communities. So be active. Take your voice. Get out there and start making noise. Um, sorry for hogging the mic. Thank you, Alex. My name's Alex, and I yield the floor. Thank you, Alex. It's really uh, inspiring and encouraging, and it is really problematic here in L.A. as well. We have a lot of uh, encampments that are being swept by police and by um, trash facilities that are coming and just taking people's lives, um, and it's really horrible. Um, there is a, a movement to, to provide porta potties and facilities for some of the encampments in Los Angeles, but there's also um, sweeps that are taking place as well. And so it seems almost block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood, and often local residents may play a role. I think it's, it's so important to recognize that there are all of these different ways of engaging and Adina's work, bringing these people in community and, and, and being able to create relationships across difference, across economic uh, kind of communities and collectives and from people who are gainfully employed and housed to people who are not starting to relate to each other and, and hold each other in mind um, is so necessary alongside this policy work, alongside this progressive um, agenda that, that needs to be pushed in our cities. So thank you. Um, Adina, what are you an extremist for? together I think you know I have a lot of friends who I've been in you know let's go out for drinks or let's host a dinner or let's do this and I'll start like naming names they're like no no no, you can't bring those people together it's too crazy like they're from such different worlds and what I actually like thrive in is just bringing different people together both in my personal life and in my professional life right my professional life we're bringing you know people who work on Wall Street, people who live in shelters. But um, in my personal life too, I'm constantly looking to connect and bring you know bring strangers together in whichever ways I can. Wow, we got to team up. I want to have like a crazy you know polarity clubhouse sesh where we just bring people from all across the board into a conversation and see what comes through. That would be really fun. You know what's interesting? Um, I have. Like, me and my friend Freya, like, every day from 4 to 4.30, we've done this, like, random podcast where it's just uncomfortable questions. And, like, me and my friend Freya are, like, very, very, very liberal, I would say. Um, and these uncomfortable questions are, like, let's be real. Have you ever peed in the shower? Have you ever walked in on your parents having sex? Like, really just uncomfortable questions. And... What's been crazy is we've had some random people who have joined who, like, we've become friends with who join us every day. And this isn't a big group. It's like five or six of us, sometimes ten on a good day. Um, and what's been interesting is we've had some people who, you know, are very, very conservative uh, when it comes to their political views. And we've kind of banded together and built relationships over these absurd, ridiculous questions. 
and occasionally like lightly politics come up and they come from such a different background uh, but it's been really special I think because over the last you know four four years eight years we've become super polarized right um, and so kind of having these clubhouse and these different opportunities to to connect people it's been really exciting for me I've loved it that sounds so fun. Well, everyone follow Adina. I want to be in those uncomfortable conversations. And also, yes, recognizing what are the things that the threads that can pull us together across our differences, right? And so often it's food, as you've noticed, and make hosting these dinners, but also it can be family or it can be love stories. It can be loss. It can be, you know, relating over death and, and the challenges there. It could be, um, you know, oh, yeah. So many. I can't even, how you feel about body hair. Like, I'm just saying, we touch all the topics. Well, th and that's epic. You know, like, you're getting into both, like, the humor as well as the kind of serious stuff. That's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, like, thinking about all these, like, what are this really intense kind of emotional conversations we can have? But I think allowing humor to show up and being a little silly with it is even better because it just breaks down our, our rigid exteriors. So, really great. I love that. Awesome. Well, uh, this has been such an amazing conversation, and it's so inspiring to learn about your work and this specific aspect of um, how we engage with people who are experiencing houselessness and homelessness. And I'm just really, really inspired and, and excited uh, by Knock Knock Give a Sock and to meet you. Um, do you have final words or wisdom to share with the audience and with everyone here? one piece of advice in terms of approaching our neighbors on the street. I think a lot of people see these viral videos of talking to your neighbors on the street, but if you've never spoken to someone who lives on the street before, or you've only had an exchange where you put a coin in a cup and say, have a good day, it could be really, really intimidating. So I like to give basically a couple pointers, and that's how I like to leave my conversations, that they have a takeaway. Um, one, there are three instances in which we say you shouldn't approach your neighbor. One is if they seem like they're talking to themselves because then they're not engaging in a conversation with you. Um, the second one is if you see someone sleeping. The third one is if you see someone who seems severely intoxicated. Those aren't the greatest times to go over to our neighbors in the street. But if it's your first time going over and you're like, who can I go over to? What's the best opportunity? I would actually say if you ever see anyone with a cardboard sign very often those cardboard signs, whether it says, need a train ticket, war vet, you know, or these different kind of like narratives, it's actually people looking for human connection. They're trying to convey their story, they're trying to share their story. If you ever see someone with a sign, I would say, if you're gonna give a dollar, if you're gonna give a candy bar, um, make sure you're turning that transaction really into an interaction, especially with those people who have cardboard signs because they're looking for that human connection. Um, and lastly, I would like to say that when you are speaking to someone, to make sure you kneel down and you get on their eye level. Uh, that's really important. And try to, you know, I think a lot of times, like, we get fearful, whether it's talking to a stranger or talking to a neighbor on the street. It's very natural when talking to a new person to kind of feel a little bit guarded. Uh, but try to go into, like, a, like a three-second, like, meditation, if you can, almost. Just calm yourself down, calm your nerves, calm your energy. Bring yourself into a really gentle energy and then just smile and wave and get down on their eye level. Um, and those are the kind of pieces of advice I like to leave off um, in order to engage, encourage people to engage with their neighbors. And also most important, 
learn their names so that if you ever see them again, you could say, hey, David, hey, Mike, hey, Sarah. Um, and actually knowing their names is so impactful. Wow, that's such epic advice. Uh, really, really, really solid. Thank you, Adina. To take us out, I always ask, what's your favorite love song? Okay, so my favorite love song, I would say there are a bunch. I have a lot, but I would say the one that's most relevant right now is basically me and my husband were on a road trip pretty recently. We didn't have any service. So the song In Spite of Ourselves by John Prine came on and it's been amazing. And it's just about this couple that's so super in love and instead of like being guarded and careful they're just kind of diving fully into it and they're like this might all you know flip flip itself on its head but you know in spite of everything we really feel like we we won mm. we you know we won in life and we're sitting on a rainbow so it's beautiful in spite of ourselves that's the name of the song john prine i love it and i i, I want to have another conversation about your love story because it sounds like you have a really beautiful relationship so that's oh my God, I love that. He's the best. I'd love to talk about him. <laughs> yeah, part two, for sure. Well, I can tell you're a major love extremist, Adina, and just really grateful to meet you and learn more about your work and, and how you engage with your neighbors and um, lead Knock Knock Give a Sock. Everyone follow Adina. Uh, definitely check out what she's up to, kkgs.org. Um, and reach out if you have ideas for funding or partnerships or just want to get involved. And... Um, Yes. Thank you again. Thank you all for listening. And I hope that this is a conversation that you can carry out with you into your families and the people you're engaging with and, and maybe take some of these tips next time you see someone on the street and can and really build a relationship and get to know them. Um, Thank you, Ethan. And I can't wait till the day that I, you know, get on an airplane and fly to L.A. because we do come out for a bunch of events during the year and non-COVID times. And We'll meet up and I'll give you a hug in person. Absolutely. I have a lot of neighbors I want to introduce you to. <laughs> we got to hang. <laughs> I'm excited. Great. Thank you so much, Ethan. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day and uh, take good care. Peace. Take care. She don't like her eggs all runny She thinks crossing her legs is funny She looks down her nose at money She gets it on like the Easter Bunny She's my baby, I'm her honey I'm never gonna let her go He ain't got laid in a month of Sundays Caught him once and he was sniffing my undies He ain't too sharp but he gets things done Drinks his beer like it's oxygen But he's my baby and I'm his honey Never gonna let him go In spite of ourselves We'll end up sitting on a rainbow Against all odds Honey, we're the big door prize We're gonna spike Our noses right off of our faces there won't be nothing but big old hearts dancing in our eyes.
She thinks all my jokes are corny Convict movies make her horny She likes ketchup on her scrambled eggs Swears like a sailor when she shaves her legs She takes a licking and keeps on ticking I'm never gonna let her go He's got more balls than a big brass monkey He's a whacked out weirdo and a love bug junkie Sly as a fox, crazy as a loon Payday comes and he's a howling at the moon But he's my baby, I don't mean maybe I'm never gonna let him go In spite of ourselves, we'll end up a-sitting on a rainbow Against all odds, honey, we're the big door prize We're gonna spite our noses right off of our faces There won't be nothing but big old hearts dancing in our eyes In spite of ourselves We'll end up a-sitting on a rainbow Against all odds Honey, we're the big door prize But we're gonna spike Our noses right off of our faces There won't be nothing but big old hearts Dancing in our eyes There won't be nothing but big old hearts Dancing in our eyes in spite of ourselves. Thanks for listening to Love Extremist Radio. If you like this podcast, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. If you want to learn more about being a love extremist, check out www.extremist.love and follow Love Extremist on Instagram and Facebook. Find me also on Instagram at Ethan Lipsitz. Hope to hear from you soon. Peace. Love is the truth.